If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate. The Speech Uncensored podcast is looking into the speech and language pathologist role on the burn unit in today's episode with Lisa Treviso Jones of the University of Colorado Hospital. Lisa is teaching us all things about scar maturation, scar bands, allografts, TBSA, grafting schedules, mouth splints, and stretching protocols. Whew, she is covering it all here. This episode is truly Burn 101 as Lisa defines terms and illustrates the role the SLP plays in reducing contracture of the neck, face, and oral structures in patients with burn injuries. This is such an enlightening look at the impact we can have in the burn unit and the collaboration necessary to be successful there. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and I learned so much in this episode about treating burn injuries in the acute setting. I cannot wait for you to hear from Lisa. So here she is. Hello, Lisa. How's it going? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. I am really excited to learn more about what an SLP does on a burn unit because I have all kinds of thoughts and I'm not really sure where they're going. So I need you to clarify them. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, I got to read your bio before we started and it's amazing. It's incredible. And I want you to share some of that with our listeners. Please tell us what you do. So I am a speech therapist at the University of Colorado Hospital, and I have been there for over 15 years practicing in the acute care and the acute rehab settings. Um, I am fortunate that I get to specialize in many different areas. So I'm one of the primary therapists that goes down into the burn unit and the neonatal units and the acute rehab unit and, of course, all throughout the hospital. Very nice. Yeah. You also do a lot with fees. Is that correct? I do. Yes. We do a lot of fees at our hospital, which is fantastic. Yeah. And barium swallows, of course, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. I love it that your hospital can offer both of those services. I think that's really important. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. We have who's seven ICUs, I believe, in our hospital. And I feel like with that ICU population, especially, it's pretty essential to have um, these for some of those patients that are just a lot harder to transfer to a radiology suite. All right. There were two more really cool features about you that I wanted to point out before we move on. And um, one of them is your role in awake cradionomies and your nickname for that as the queen of small talk. (laughs) It's true. My coworkers, they, so um, at our hospital, we work very closely with the neurosurgeons when they uh, go into the OR to resect a brain tumor in typically the language center of the brain, whatever they've decided um, they do a WADA test beforehand to kind of get an idea of uh, where a patient is language dominant. 
And so we are fortunate enough that we get to go into the OR with our neurosurgeons. And while the patient is awake, we do what's called cortical mapping, um, where we, the neurosurgeon will kind of determine where the area that he's going to resect is, and we evaluate the patient. And then while they're resecting the tumor, we also are in there constantly evaluating. So there's times where I'm in there for hours. And so my coworkers are like, I don't know how you can sit there. And I'm like, I can talk to anybody about anything for however long. It's amazing. It's so fun. That is so cool. What a great use for that skill. Like we all know someone exactly like that who can strike a conversation with anybody at any time on any topic and just run with it. Like that's the perfect setting, like calling all extroverts. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And I always walk in the next day to follow up with the patient and they're like, oh, you know my entire life story. I'm like, yeah, it's great. I'm like, you know my life story. I know your life story. It's great. (laughs) That's so cool. All right. And then another really cool thing about you is that you are bilingual. And so you're able to offer bilingual services like on the spot. That is really incredible. Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, It's Super fun. I my parents are both from Mexico, so I grew up hearing Spanish, but I always replied back in English, and so I didn't use a lot of my Spanish growing up. And then in between undergrad and grad school, I went to South America and lived with a family and studied Spanish for like five months and every single day, and have been able to come back and use it a ton in the hospital, which is awesome. That is really good. That is like. I I just think people who can speak more than one language are just the coolest people on the planet. <laughs> like, I just, it opens up your availability to communicate and connect with like so many more people. And I love that. I think that's so cool. It's Yay. a lot of fun. Yeah. And I get to use it a lot, which is fantastic. We have two of us at our hospital, more than that. Well, she, one of them is a PRN, but two that are full-time And so we basically just split the Spanish-speaking caseload. And so there's days where my entire caseload is all Spanish speakers. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. That's great. What you just provide so many valuable services. I just (laughs) like I'm like I got to take stock of my life and do some like introspection now. (laughs) All right. Um, Okay. So I really want to know how did you get into the burn unit? Like why? Are we there? What do we do? Yeah. So um, by default, since you know I've been at university for over 15 years, and when I started there, we were less than a 300-bed hospital. I was the only full-time speech therapist, um, and then I had my supervisor and then one other person who came in part-time. And so with that, I had to go everywhere. And so I had to learn everything. I never learned much about speech therapy being in the burn unit, but I had amazing physical and occupational therapy mentors who really helped um, guide me and help me develop this practice. So now we, we staff, you know, six, seven speech therapists a day, plus our supervisor. And we're like over a 700 bed hospital. So we've definitely grown in that time. And so it's, it's been fun to see kind of more speech therapists go down and specialize in the burn unit. So there's four of us now that specialize down there. And so since your OT and PT colleagues 
um, mentored you and invested in you. Then when your hospital was growing and adding more staff, then you kind of trained the ones coming up under you. Yes. Yeah. That was awesome. Question. Are there like conferences or things that you can go to for like working in a burn unit? You know, there are some, I've gone to a couple at, um, like Northwestern and when it used to be rehab Institute of Chicago, I think it's like the Shirley Ryan, um, Institute now, but they've had some, I went to one of their courses and I've seen that they have like some online courses, but it's really few and far between. And I will tell you the American burn association has a huge conference every year and they maybe have a little bit that a speech therapist could go to, but um, it's not really recognized by ASHA. So we would have to go into ASHA and say, hey, I went to this course. So normally what happens is our um, PTs and OTs will come back from the ABA conference and be like, hey, speech therapist, this is what we learned. This is like the new upcoming stuff. And then we'll kind of look into it on our own. Okay. All right. Ooh, this is setting us up to go into so many wonderful places. Cause you know, like my head, I'm thinking, well, OT and PT were doing this before. So now I'm guessing like, we're just working basically from the neck up. And so that's what they were doing. And now they get to focus on the other regions of the body more specific to their discipline. So they're kind of like handing over that part of the body to us now. Absolutely. And it, it really, I mean, they can't focus on the mouth and the neck and the face all the time. Cause you're right. They have so many other things depending on the um, area that this patient was burned. And so they really, it's, it's amazing how much our PT and OT colleagues are um, so happy to have us down there and are great at collaborating with us and get us involved any chance that they get, which I think is pretty rare and unique for um, a burn unit. Because even when we've had Jayco come and evaluate, our, or sorry, the ABA come and um, look at our hospital, they, they're like, you have speech therapy down in the burn unit? They're like, that's amazing. And so it's kind of a... It's been around for a long time, but I just don't think that it's still that frequent. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. I understand that. There are like little, as I do this podcast and meet and interview people, I see where people have just kind of started carving out places for themselves or by default falling into things and then (laughs) taking it over because it aligns with our specialized skills. And it's like, it's, it's almost like, oh, well, why not? We have so much we can offer and, spe- and we already specialize in these areas. So let's just learn a little bit more and serve another population. So. Exactly. That's really cool. That's awesome. Well, I want to know about the um, demographics. Tell me a little bit about who ends up on burn units and um, some statistics around those. Yeah, of course. So according to the um, some data from 2015 in the National Burn Repository, um, about 69% of injured people were male, um, mean age, usually about 32, um, children under five years old are about 20% of cases. And then adults over 60 years old are about 12% of cases. That's an interesting spread. So you've got a large portion of men in their early thirties children under five, and then our senior population. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. It's kind of crazy. We we have a much better survival rate than we used to um, with some of even our 
bigger burns. And so survival rate now with burn injury is about 96%, which is fantastic. Um, a lot of the causes, like 43% were fire, flame, 34% were scalding injuries, um, 4% electrical, 3% chemical burns, 7% other. And place of occurrence, 73% of the people injured were injured at home, 8% occupational, um, 5% street or highway, so like car accidents, and then 5% recreational sport, and then 9% was other. So typically, the types of burns that you're going to see are kind of like the the skull, scalding from hot liquids, um, flames, chemical burn, radiation burn, friction, frostbite, which is not something that people typically think about, um, inhalation, so breathing in those gases or mists, um, those horrible chemicals, and electrical burn. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think before you really outlined all those different areas, I really just thought typical fire exposure type of burns, but wow. Yeah. Scalding with liquids, electrical, chemical, like, and I feel like those have very different, similar, but different kinds of results on our skin and tissue and internal. So absolutely. So like an electrical burn, you think about somebody who's been struck by lightning, um, Usually you have an entry point, exit point, and so that's going to do a lot more internal damage. It kind of starts to burn inside out. Um, inhalation burn, that inhalation burns are typically our highest mortality rate. When you get somebody who has that in- inhalation burn that's like ingested a lot of those gases or chemicals or um, smoke that can just have a lot of damage. And I'll go into a little bit of that in a little bit here, but... Yeah, versus just, um, and then also the flame burns. So yeah, there's a lot of different things. I do know that there are levels of burn, like first degree burn, degree burn. I, I know that there's a hierarchy there, um, but I think I'm also asking like, are there different types of burns? Um, and I don't think there are, or maybe I would have heard a name for them. Like, I guess maybe just a chemical burn versus a fire type of burn. Mm-hmm. like. Are those really treated any different or do they just pretty much respond the same way to the same kind of intervention? Um, It depends. It it depends, like, again, if it's more the internal or the external burn, um, you're going to have things kind of present externally pretty similarly. Um, Also, which also presents very similarly that people don't really think about is like Steven Johnson syndrome. So when you get these people who have this reaction to some type of medication, their skin starts to slough off, similar to a burn. So we end up with a lot of those patients in our burn unit, um, and they can end up needing grafting um, all over their body as well, depending on like the severity of the reaction. Holy cow. That's the first time I'm hearing about that. That sounds intense. That is like an allergic reaction gone haywire. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime you see that antibiotic and it says, don't go in the sun when you're on that antibiotic, it's because of the possibility of developing Steven Johnson syndrome too. Um, I mean, you can have the reaction, but you can also have like an increased sensitivity to your skin that turns into 
what they call Steven Johnson syndrome. Oh my gosh, there is so much fear in my heart right now. <laughs> right. I'm never taking medication again for the rest of my life. This is super scary. I know. It's, and you're just over there like, these are facts. This is how it is. And I'm like internally freaking out now. <laughs> I know. It's, it's hard to work in a hospital and then walk out into the real world and be like, oh, you know what? It's a very small population that this actually happens to. Because when you're living it every single day, it's like, oh my gosh, how does... Not everybody end up with this, but of course it's very rare and it doesn't happen all that often. Yeah. Yeah. Just very startling information. I was not expecting to, which is kind of fun. Like I love learning new things and that was definitely very new. (laughs) Yeah. And then I, do you mind if I tell you a little bit about just our university burn center? Oh yes, absolutely. Please do. So um, just so people have a little better idea of kind of, Um, how big our burn unit is. At University of Colorado, we have about 450 admissions per year, burn injury admissions. We have nine ICU beds, 10 ICU slash step-down beds, and then we have unlimited floor beds for um, these burn patients to go to. On average, we have a census of about 18 patients on our unit. And we staff that with either two to four PTs or OTs consistently. And like I said earlier, we have um, four speech therapists that specialize in burn. And I would say on any given day, we kind of, we spread the wealth. Like each of us will kind of take one or two. We don't like staff it fully, but each of us will have like one or two um, patients with burn injury on our caseload at any given time. But these patients can sometimes be in the hospital for, you know, very long time past a year. And so, um, we sometimes follow these patients for a while. So we, we kind of trade off. Some of us will take them in the beginning of the week, some of them at the end of the week, and we just kind of rotate so that nobody gets really burnt out because it's pretty, pretty intense work. Sometimes it can be very emotional, um, very psychological, um, for the patients. And so sometimes it just gets very, very hard. And so we try to rotate around, but we'll, you know, give some, a speech therapist a break. And then, um, you know, we'll pick back up in like a couple weeks or something like that. That's really good. I'm so glad that you guys like look out for each other and that you recognize that and take that into account. Um, another question, um, what's the frequency that they need to be seen? Is it daily, two times a day, couple times a week? Does it just depend on what stage of recovery they're in? It really does. I mean, initially, similar to like an ICU um, patient that you're following for swallowing, you might see them pretty consistently. And then once you get them on a diet and you're just making sure they're tolerating it, you might see them only a couple days a week to make sure. Um, As far as like burn stretching, things like that, we'll probably, there's some patients we'll get on our caseload and they're doing pretty well. And so we'll follow for maintenance. So maybe we're following them for, um, you know, once a week just to make sure that everything's going okay. Because with scar maturation, you kind of never know when the body is going to send all that scar tissue somewhere. So we keep them on our caseload just to make sure um, they're not developing any scar bands or anything like that. And so we'll follow them. But then there's other patients who we are doing stretching with them, um, you know, three, four times a week, we might be developing 
um, splints or face masks or something like that. So we might be seeing them a lot more. Okay. Yeah. So many new words you just said that I'm like, scar maturation? Can't wait to learn more about these as our talk progresses. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, I can dive into some some terminology if you would like. More terminology. Sure, that'd be great. So one of the things when, uh, like, the EMTs come across somebody who's been um, injured, they are going to look for total body surface area. So that the TBSA is something that you're going to see written all over somebody's chart. And basically what they've done is it's a rule of nines. So they divide the body into 11 different parts and pretty much everything's 9%. And this is standardized across the country so that anytime a patient is transferred from a burn unit to a burn unit, they, um, they know that they're, everybody's using this consistent method to determine the patient's total body surface area. The total body surface area really um, guides how the medical team is going to treat this patient. And so it just gives them a lot of information. There's a medical complications and mortality with increased total body surface area, which would make sense. Um, increased delirium with, in, with um, higher total body surface area, um, infection risk, and of course, higher likelihood of contractures in different body parts with a bigger burn. Yeah. So, and just so people out there know, adults and kids, the rule of nines is going to be a little bit different because they have different body proportions. And so since I work with adults, everything's kind of broken down into that, um, 11 areas. So it's 11 areas at 9% and then the groin is 1%. But um, with kids, it's going to be different. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Do your burn unit take on pediatrics or do they go to a pediatric hospital that has a burn unit? They go to children's hospital. So we are on a campus with the VA Medical Center, University of Colorado Hospital, and our children's hospital. And so typically we... And sometimes we'll get, like, if there was a house fire or something, sometimes we'll get the parents and the kids will go over to children's hospital, things like that. But yeah, they, we rarely get any pediatrics. Every once in a while, we've kind of had an outlier because of other trauma or neuro stuff that needs to be dealt with, like with a teenager or something. Um, but other than that, we, we typically get the 18 and over. Okay. So, um, Another kind of thing that you'll hear a lot with the um, burn burn trauma patients is just, um, you know, different layers of the skin that have been impacted. And so um, without being able to show pictures, because this is all audio, I was going to kind of go into a little explanation of kind of the anatomy of the skin and kind of how we break it down. And then it will kind of lead into the first degree, second degree, third degree, stuff like that, just to give you guys a little bit more information. So um, we have the epidermis, which is kind of the the top layer of the skin. Then we have the dermis, and then we have the subcutaneous tissue kind of at the bottom. And for lack of better descriptors, I kind of think of it as like a cake. 
So you have the frosting up top, you have the main cake part, and then you have that like Oreo cookie crust at the bottom, right? And so that's how you can kind of think of the different layers of the skin. I do love an analogy. (laughs) (laughs) It just makes it easier, I feel like, for people to visualize, especially since we're on audio, right? It does. It does. (laughs) So... The burn depth classification, you can have what's called the the superficial, so the the first degree burns. So that's the epidermis. That's your frosting layer. Um, This is when you fall asleep on the beach and you end up with a really bad sunburn. So this is kind of what we call the superficial or first degree burn. This is not included if somebody were to get picked up um, by the ambulance and they had this, this is not even included in the total body surface area. So you really need more depth before they're going to include it in what I was talking about before with that total body surface area. So the second degree, so you're getting into more the frosting and a little bit more of the cake where you're getting partial thickness. So in deep partial thickness, So you're getting more into that epidermis and the dermis. And that's what we consider the second degree burn. And then full thickness, you're getting all the way down to that cake and into your cookie crumble crust at the bottom. And that's the epidermis, the dermis, and the subcutaneous tissue. And that's what we call our full thickness burn, third degree. And then we have our fourth degree, which is going down to you know, all those layers plus bone tissue. And typically when you end up with that fourth degree burn, you're looking at amputation of limbs and things like that because it's it's damaged pretty much everything. So with that, the superficial, like I was talking about before, the first degree, you're going to end up with... Um, kind of that red, bright pink color, the sensation is going to be really painful. Um, and it's going to take about three to seven days to heal. And you're going to end up with some of that peeling, you know, we've, we've all had that, you know, those days where we're too long in the sun. <laughs> so we all know the superficial, um, the partial thickness, I goes that second degree burn is going to be really bright red. It's going to be much more painful, and the healing time with that is going to be about 7 to 21 days. You might have minimal scarring, but with some pigment changes. And that's like what I said, the superficial. And then once we get into the deep partial thickness, this is where we're starting to get into um, like the burn almost looks white in color, um, maybe with a little bit pink. Um, if you touch the skin, it, it blanches, um, which indicates some healing. So, um, it's something it's in treatment. We actually look for a lot of blanching because we know that we're actually getting to the depth that we need to, um, to kind of break up some scar tissue. And typically with this deep partial thickness, you're going to, um, pain indicates healing. So it's always a good thing when somebody's having pain and then no pain typically means that you've gone to an area that's probably full thickness burn. So you've gone all the way down from the, the, um, that Oreo cookie crust and the patient no longer has sensation. They don't even feel that it's painful anymore. 
because it's gone so deep, it's gone past all those nerve endings. And typically when you're in this deep partial, you're going to look at like 21 to 35 days if you don't end up with an infection or anything like that. But these, these deep partial thickness burns are really um, notorious for turning into full thickness burns too as they develop. And you're going to, this is when you're running into the risk of developing more of that like hypotrophic scarring where that scar kind of like builds up quite a bit. And this is where speech therapy, especially when you have somebody with a burn on their face where you're trying to minimize the, the scarring and the appearance of scars as much as possible. All right. Ooh, I think you're laying such a good foundation to then like you're establishing then when we go into treatment and like how that's going to connect with the level of burn that they have. I'm so excited. Okay. What's next? (laughs) So, and then like I was saying with the the full thickness, you're going to end up with that like mixed white waxy kind of pearly um, looking texture of the skin. Um, This is when the patient doesn't have any pain. Um, Hairs will tend to pull out pretty easily. Um, And this full thickness will require what we call skin grafting. And I'll get into skin grafting here in a little bit because it it goes into a lot of kind of what we're what we're doing from a a therapy standpoint. So um, you do not need skin grafting for second degree burn. It depends. So with the deep partial thickness, um, some of that can turn into full thickness. So what ends up happening is our medical team will really um, consistently monitor to see how those wounds are healing. And if it looks like it's turning into a full thickness, they might they might go ahead and graft. But normally, like with the superficial or super partial, superficial partial thickness, you know, you're not going to require grafting. Our hope is that it will heal on its own. Okay. I just love the terminology that is so very unique to this type of injury, you know, full thickness, partial thickness, superficial, partial thickness. Like, I know. I know. I'm so confused. Are we talking about liquids or, okay, no, about of burn. Okay. I'm on, I'm back on board. <laughs> I know it's, it's crazy. And again, when I first got into the burn unit, all of this was like, what? Like you don't learn about this in graduate school or anything. And it's funny because now it's just like second nature. You go into the chart and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. Partial thickness, full thickness. This is, yeah. So it's, it's fun. So with some of our grafting, um, and grafting is, um, so people know, is when they basically take skin to cover an area that, um, you know, with our full thickness burns, they're they're going pretty deep. They have a really large wound. They have wounds all over their body. And so they're going to need something to kind of cover it. And initially all over the body, they'll typically um, use what's called allograft. And this is skin from a cadaver that they use to temporarily cover um, a wound base just to promote that healing until a patient is ready for what they call autograft. And I'll go into that in a second. But um, for somebody who has the allograft, so if we're talking with our PTs and OTs, there's usually, um, they like to give it a couple days. So post-op day three after allograft has been placed, they'll allow therapists to kind of go in there and 
start with their their treatments. Do you know the aloe part is is that like aloe vera or it just sounds like it? yeah a l l o graft okay aloe graft okay yeah we have a a company here in Denver that's aloe source which like um can processes all of this like cadaver skin and will sometimes ship it out to different places and I think Colorado maybe nationally I don't know where they send stuff to maybe it's just for Colorado hospitals I have no idea but yeah so it's aloe graft a l l o graft um that is interesting yeah I am learning so much <laughs> it is so interesting this is wild continue um, so then auto graft is, um, and this is like auto automobile, a U T O graft. This is the donation of skin from your own body. So this is typically, they will put an auto graft on a full thickness burn when they're in the final stages of wound healing and, um, and hope that it takes and it keeps, um, so then they, they'll initially tell us they, they don't want us really doing anything for about um, until post-op day five or after because they really want those blood vessels to connect with the, the graft and hopefully that um, it'll regenerate it and kind of hold on to that graft and keep it. So we'll, we'll do active range of motion after post-op day five and then you we're usually cleared to do passive range of motion seven to 10 days after that graft has been placed. What's the difference between passive and active range of motion activities? So active is essentially what they can do on their own. And passive is us going in there and extending it beyond what they can do on their own right now. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I would show you, but... <laughs> So hands-on, pulling, stretching, skin, and like opening jaw, opening lips, cheeks. Exactly. Or we kind of, you know, um, one of the treatment things that we'll do if somebody's burned around their mouth and they have scar banding that's developing around their mouth, um, we'll do a, a lovely therapy, which is, we call it the fish hook, where you can imagine where we put our fingers in their mouth and really try to get both that lateral and a vertical stretch to prevent their mouth from really tightening and contracting to the point where they have a hard time speaking, a hard time putting a toothbrush in their mouth. So that's really what we're trying to avoid with some of those mm-hmm. passive range of motion exercises. I will say they're not their favorite, but they, um, they, once they start to see improvements and some of it can even be proactive. So we're, we'll tell them we're doing this to prevent anything from getting tighter. And this is the thing that we're going to have to do to maintain, um, because scar maturation does not fully mature or scars don't fully mature until like 12 to 14 months after injury sometimes even up to 24 months. And so our body will still send a lot of that scar tissue to the area. So we tell these patients, like, this stretching doesn't end in acute care. Like, this stretching needs to continue for that first year, second year, until it's fully matured, and then they don't have to worry about it as much. It's 
Um, they're going to have the range of motion that they have at that point. But anything we can do to prevent that contracture is what we're trying to ingrain in them, especially in the acute care stages, and get their family involved to also try to help it because it's it's constant. I'll have patients who you know, I work with and we're stretching. And at the beginning of the stretch, they have very limited range of motion. And at the end of our session, they have great range of motion. And then their wife will be like, oh, and then an hour later, they were like back down. And I'm like, it has to be constant round the clock stretching. And our, and our PTs are and OTs will often be putting people in different positions so that they can maintain, um, you know, that open range of motion. We always say um, position of comfort is position of contracture. So any position that's going to be comfortable for them is really not a position we want them in, unfortunately, because we we really need to maintain that active stretch constantly. Okay. So if a person is resting in bed, they've just been seen by, let's say, OT, for example, then they're going to position their... if like let's say their right arm has Mm -hmm. a lot of scar tissue, they're going to position that in a specific way to help keep it stretched essentially. Yeah. Because if they just relax it down to like lying by their side, then that's where the scar tissue is going to start to stiffen and hold that one position. And they'll, they'll lose that range of motion if they're not even resting in a specific kind of posture. Exactly. Which is crazy. So they, our OTs and PTs will position with a lot of wedges with the um, patient's arms out because yeah, if you have their arms resting by their side, that's essentially where their scars are going to develop. And then they'll get to the point where they can't even functionally lift their arms. So it's definitely important. And same, um, like we work with a lot of people with neck injuries. And so we tell them they can't have pillows because pillows kind of put them in that, um, like flexed position and we want them in more an extent, um, extension position so that they can maintain that neck range of motion. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So many things, (laughs) all the things, not just while you're in there doing active or passive, exercises or stretches. It's also what they're doing when you're not in the room and how they're resting and reclining, lying, sitting, all of those things to help keep the skin staying as elastic as possible rather than becoming fibrotic. Is that a term you use? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, um, the skin, I, this is a horrible way to look at it. But um, if you were to stick a chicken in the microwave and microwave it to the point where it is just that really dry um, kind of texture, that's similar to how the skin starts to develop. So it just starts to tighten. Everything starts to tighten. You lose that elastin in your skin um, after the injury. And as it's healing, it's just shrinking, shrinking, shrinking and getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So what we try to do, like um, I was mentioning before, when you have the scar tissue around your mouth and you have scar bands that are starting to prevent you from opening your mouth, we want them to really constantly open their mouth to the point where it starts to crack and sometimes bleed, but we want that increased range of motion. 
same thing that we're aiming for with like the arms or the legs. You want that, um, that optimal range of motion because, and if you don't have that happen, then it's just going to continue to heal and to continue to get tighter. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. All right. Um, do you feel like you covered grafting schedules and stretching protocols? Because we also wanted to talk about mouth splints and face masks. Yeah. And we have about five, 10 minutes. So I want to make sure you cover oh my gosh. Like all your. I have so many things. So let me briefly just touch on. So there's two types of autografts um, that patients are going to receive. So they're going to receive either a sheet graft or a mesh graft. Typically for the hands, the face, anything that's going to be a little bit more uh, cosmetic appealing, they're going to go with a sheet graft because um, they're basically taking the patient's own skin and without altering it at all, they're surgically placing it on the area that needs to be covered. Um, It requires a larger donor site and, um, but it's, it's precious skin, you know? So if this patient has burned, been burned in a lot of their body, sometimes finding that area is really hard to find. So for larger areas of the body that need to be covered, they're going to use what's called a mesh graft. And, um, this is skin, their own skin that's expanded by running it through a mesher that cuts grooves um, into the graft. So it allows for drainage underneath the graft. Um, and it's expanded over a larger area. So it's almost just like put through, through a machine that kind of stretches it out and really, um, get more bang for your buck because it is a smaller piece of skin, but it can be really stretched to a larger surface area. But typically you end up with like a waffle-like appearance. And so they don't usually like to do that on hands or faces or anything like that. Donor sites, just so people know, um, they use a device in the OR where they take whatever area of skin that they can um, and they basically turn it into a partial thickness injury because they're taking that layer of skin, right? They're taking the frosting and a little bit into the cake and what have you. And they are taking that. But what we know about that superficial partial thickness um, injury is that it heals. About seven to 21 days, that's going to heal. And so if you have someone with a really large burn all over their body, but they have an area that they can take a donor site from, after it heals, they can go back to that same site and reharvest it. So they can keep um, using that area to put over different parts of the body. That's incredible. That just reinforces what how amazing our bodies are that we can take a layer of that cake, it will heal, and we can harvest from it again. And that's that's mind-blowing. Our Bodies are amazing. <laughs> they really are. They're, they're incredible what we can do and how we can heal and what have you. It's, it's pretty impressive. And where we've come in technology to be able to do all of this stuff too blows my mind. And they're constantly coming up with new ways of how they cover different bodies. And there's all kinds of new things. I mean, years ago, they used to use a lot of like animal skin. Um, where they'd take like 
you know, the skin of a pig or whatever for like the temporary healing until they were ready to have the autograph or whatever. So, but I think they're kind of going away from that. They're using the cadaver skin and then, you know, I'm sure they'll come up with other stuff too. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So from a speech therapy standpoint, um, you know, when, when we have these patients with face or facial burns and neck burns, we, we do from a treatment standpoint, look at how can we maintain that function? How can we maintain that range of motion? So we will develop mouth splints, neck splints, face splints, um, from a scar maturation point. We, when you start to get that hypertrophic scarring. So when you start to get the skin, that's kind of puffing up, we, we can do what we call, um, manual overpressure. So we're basically pushing on the skin in like a circular manner to try to break up some of that scar tissue and to get that constant blanching so that we're, um, the more pressure you can apply to something, the um, less likely you're going to get the appearance of the um, really raised scars. And so that's why, too, you'll see um, people after burn injury, well, they'll be wearing like face masks and stuff like that to kind of apply that constant pressure to kind of smooth out the skin and reduce that appearance of um, those, those built up scars. And so we'll do that where we will make face masks. We often um, get a material that's lined with silicone because silicone has a nice property where it can help uh, smooth the appearance of some of those scars. Um, a lot of times for like the tricky neck or face um, splints, we'll work closely with our OTs or PTs because it's just nice to have a lot of hands. And um, we have a material that you kind of you stick in the hot pan and after it cools for a little bit, you can shape it to the patient's face. And but you kind of need all hands on deck to make sure that you're getting um, pressure points in all the areas that you really want. So sometimes if we have a lip that is kind of starting to be pulled down, because if you think about it, if somebody's burned on their chest and that skin starts to tighten, it starts to tighten everything along with it. So it starts to pull the chin down. It starts to pull your lip down. It starts to, you know, pull your lower eyelids down as everything starts to tighten. And so we try to get splints to, um, not only apply pressure, but also kind of keep things lifted so that things don't start pulling down. So the eyelids don't start pulling down. So the lips don't start pulling down. Um, and so that you can still also maintain some of that extension in your neck and stuff. So we'll also make mouth splints to kind of break down some of the scar tissue on the side of the mouth. And we use also the material that lined with silicone. And um, it's been a lot of trial and error. Uh, and I feel like every mouth splint we make is usually different based on the patient. So if a patient has um, burns on the back of their head. You don't really want to be strapping stuff. Um, to open wounds. And so then we're trying to figure out, do we strap from on the top of the head? How can we um, harness this? Um, sometimes they, we've used dental appliances um, to try to get that vertical and that lateral stretch um, to really open the mouth. And if we can't like harness anything, um, sometimes that's a good option. 
Um, a lot of these we, we term it's like microostomia prevention appliances. There used to be one on the market, but um, they, they no longer make them. It's called MPA, microostomia prevention appliances. But what we were realizing, too, is that they was, it was only giving patients a lateral stretch. And so the patient would have this like great big smile, but then like still couldn't open their mouth. So it wasn't as functional. Um, And so we've gone away from using those. And like I said, I don't think the company makes them anymore, but um, we try to get more of that vertical as well as that lateral stretch because it's just going to be more functional. If you want to eat a hamburger, you're going to need to open your mouth, right? Um, Yeah, to be able to eat anything or... um, talking, facial expression. It's amazing once somebody's mouth starts to contract how how their facial expressions will completely change. And so we definitely want to make sure we keep them as animated as possible. Do you ever give them any like, you know, like, oh, here's your homework. I want you to practice like emotions and expressions while I'm not here. Like just run through happy, sad, frightened, surprised, like make your face do that. Absolutely. Or raise your eyebrows, scrunch up your nose, give a big smile, pucker your lips. And I'll tell them while you're watching TV, I want you to constantly be doing these. Um, and with their our splints too, we typically recommend that people are putting them on three to four times a day. I always encourage them to put it put their splints on about an hour or two before they even start to have a meal, usually an hour before they, their meal is going to arrive so that they're getting that stretch. And then hopefully during their meal, they're actively stretching as well. They're just using more functional stretch. Um, with some of the other splints, like our face splints and our neck splints, we encourage them to wear it up to 23 hours a day which I know is really hard. We encourage patients to sleep in them if they can um, and then take it off to put their mouth splints in and then to eat and then to put it back on. Like we really try to have these on as much as tolerated, especially in those earlier times where we're really trying to be proactive of um, reducing the appearance of scars and maintaining some of that range of motion. Okay. Wow. All right. I feel like there's so much more we can dive into, but this is, this is it. This is our time, Lisa. Can you believe it? Like it went by super fast. Oh no. I didn't even get into inhalation injury and dysphagia. (laughs) I guess we'll have to record another one, won't we? I guess so. (laughs) Oh, shucks. (laughs) Happy to do that anytime. Oh, good. Um, Lisa, this was amazing. Like I couldn't help myself from saying like multiple times during this conversation, how mind blowing this information is. I love the new terminology that I'm being exposed to the new concepts, um, the Steven Johnson syndrome. Like I will never look at the sun again. The same. (laughs) Only when you're on an antibiotic, only when you're on an antibiotic. (laughs) Oh man. And, um, Also, I'm going to have a very complicated relationship with waffles and cake from now on. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) You probably did me a favor. Let's be honest. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. But seriously, Lisa, this was such an insightful look into a very, very specialized service that we can provide on burn units. Um, it's really fascinating. And thank you so much for oh, this, this really like quick look into what it's like. Cause I mean, just hearing you talk about it, it's pretty clear there, there are so many levels, so many factors that go into deciding on a treatment plan for a patient because no two burns on a patient are going to be alike and how the different burns are located on the body are going to influence what you're going to be focusing on and working on. And I also love hearing about how OT and PT and the SLP are working together for a full body picture on this patient and helping them out. Absolutely. Incredible. Thank you. Of course. And I definitely could not do it without my OTs and PTs and my other speech therapy crew. I mean, we, we all work really well together and we have an awesome team and it's, it's super fun. It's definitely a niche. Um, but it's, it's really neat to kind of, every time we're making something, it's just problem solving. Like, okay, this is a little different. Every burn's a little different. How can we make this splint work for this patient? Yeah, that's pretty cool. I I love that aspect also of problem solving. You know, you get to think creatively and uh, come up with solutions. And there's a lot of like satisfaction that can come out of like conquering a problem and overcoming those obstacles for the success and well-being of your patient. That's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's really fun. I'm lucky to be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I could go on and on. I mean, I had so many other things. (laughs) I know. Don't worry, girl. We will. We will go on. (laughs) Okay. That sounds good. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 